Nature Works podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to NatureWorks Podcast. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Malika Vaz, who, if you are a fan of National Geographic, you'll know that she is one of their famous Nat Geo explorers. She's also a filmmaker and presenter, and she's been directing and hosting films and TV series for media networks such as Nat Geo, Al Jazeera, Discovery Channel, BBC and Animal Planet. And in this episode, we discuss filming in remote regions of the planet, going undercover with criminal syndicates in the illegal fish markets, and more broadly, documentary making as a force for change. If you enjoy this episode and others, please share with folks who care about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast always aims to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can protect, restore, and regenerate our only living planet. We'll only protect what we care about, in these conversations hopefully incite respect maybe even awe and we hope a little love for the only place that you've got to live on in this vast spinning universe what, what listeners or viewers of this won't know is that you've just very kindly moved from one room to the other because of sound issues but you've moved immediately into a room with a wall of photos of animals behind you and i'm assuming those have something to do with your work as a wildlife filmmaker is that right yeah, so some of these photographs you see behind me are actually screen grabs from videos that we filmed um, in different parts of the world. So you can see um, a turtle from the Maldives, a tiger from the forests of central India. Um, we've got an Asiatic lion right here. Um, and it's just nice to have a little bit of wildness in our office at my production company, just to remind us of what we're in this for. It's a... It's a wonderful opening frame for my line of questioning on this podcast because i've read articles about you online and the especially the one on national geographic and i had to double check that you were actually 25 because you've seemingly lived the life of a 50 year old so far or rather you've packed more in than most 50 year olds will uh, have done um i i'm quite amazed actually by the fact that you've made the films that you have whilst also being so directly active in illegal wildlife trade, cessation, human and wildlife conflict, etc. But you're also a Cessna pilot, a competitive windsurfer and an endurance horse ra- racer rider. Where, wh- how, where, uh, as a girl growing up, do you grew up in, in Goa, right? Is that I did. Correct? I, mean, I don't do any sport competitively. I, I used to win um you know in races and stuff and now i would surf for fun i ride horses for fun i climb mountains because i love it i've always loved being outdoors and that's kind of how i got started with filmmaking as well because i started diving when i was 12 and i was seeing all of these incredible things underwater and when you get back home after a dive communicating them in just words just falls short um and i thought that the visual medium was a great way to tell stories about the places that i was falling in love with but i guess more importantly i mean Yes, I'm driven by a sense of adrenaline, but I think that one of the reasons I wanted to be a wildlife filmmaker is because for my generation of people living on this planet today, we cannot afford to be telling stories that are just about beautiful places. Um, we need to be able to communicate complexity and what's happening to the natural world and what those incredible solutions look like. 
Yeah, I am probably the greatest fanboy of Sir David Attenborough. And anyone listening to this podcast will know that I mentioned, typically I mention two people when I'm talking about heroes. One is Yvonne Chouinard, who is the founder mm-hmm. and owner of Patagonia. And you may have seen he's just recently given it away. Um, I've been talking about uh, Patagonia and been a loyal fan of theirs for the last 25 years. And the other is David Attenborough. And um, Yvonne Chouinard is uh, famous for saying you don't, you won't ever protect what you don't love. And Sir David Attenborough obviously has had the effect of bringing the natural world into the homes of hundreds of millions, maybe billions. Um, I don't know what the reach of his shows are, but I would imagine it's a billion or more. And it's exactly what you're pointing out there, that the, the necessity to actually share the beauty and the wonder to all the people who don't have access, right? It, there are the majority of of humans live in cities or live in urban areas where they're never going to be able to see the animals and the creatures and the ecosystems that they're directly impacting with their choices every day and so you're you're doing a i suspect you do it because you enjoy it as well but you're doing a public service on a major well you're doing a, a planetary service by making these these films on that let's start there because as a uh, so i've worked in film and tv I uh, worked for a number of years in television in the UK, made a couple of uh, re- really successful series and, f- and they were in the outdoors and, and the likes, unfortunately, not as um, uh, not designed to be as impactful as yours is your uh, content is. Mine were more for entertainment back in the day. Um, but I know just how unbelievably difficult it is to string together compelling stories that rise above the noise. There's millions of wannabe filmmakers out there and there's an endless amount of content being made and going on YouTube and the likes as we see. But you've already made critically acclaimed uh, documentaries. One of which I'm, is, am I right in saying one was even, is Oscar nominated, the Peng Yu Sai? Is that right? Green Oscar Sorry? Green Oscar nominated. Green Oscar nominated, yeah. Sorry, yeah, absolutely right. Um, so... How, as a, you're, you're 25 years old, you're a young woman who's traveling around the world when she's not windsurfing or flying Cessnas. Um, how have you learned this craft of being able to make such impactful uh, uh, documentaries? Because it's, it's incredibly difficult. Well, you know, I want to dig into something that you said a little bit earlier when you were talking about your own storytelling, and that's the usage of the word entertaining. I genuinely believe that we need more entertaining programming because if something is impactful, but if it doesn't entertain you and it doesn't draw you in with the visuals and with the storytelling, then you are going to flip channels. And that's something that my team and I are definitely very cognizant of. We're constantly thinking about that. How do you tell difficult stories in ways that are interesting for global audiences? And what we've realized is that you have to have that common thread of humanity and you cannot remove the humanity and the human story from the natural story. Um, I am a big fan of David Attenborough as well and so much of his work. And I think especially more so now in the last few years as he's evolved and started telling stories about conservation issues. But I still do think that in traditional media, we don't often talk about the communities that are at the front lines. They are unfortunately at the front lines of conservation, but they never 
on the front pages of newspapers and never on mainstream television. And that's something that I really care about. Um, so in the programming that we make, we want to keep it entertaining. We want to reach out to audiences all across the world, but we want to keep the communities, the people who are most impacted by environmental change front and center, whether that is people we're reaching out to through, through global broadcast, or whether that is the people we actively choose to have on screen as protagonists in our stories. And I mean, I've always known that I wanted to be a wildlife filmmaker. I have a notebook somewhere where it says that I want to be a wildlife anchor when I was about five or six or something like that. Um, I didn't know the terms back then, but Steve Owen was actually my hero more than David Attenborough. And he was this, you know, exciting guy who was doing crazy things. And I wanted to be like him when I was little. I now see how, you know, my style of storytelling is very different, but I do think that you know, entertainment at its core can draw people in and that's when you hit them with the messaging. That's when you hit them with what they can actually do to change things in a tangible way. So I love talking about documentary making uh, as it pertains to wildlife and conservation and environmentalism. Um, I've said on a number of occasions on previously with wildlife cameramen and the likes that they're living the life that I wanted to live because it, it's it, if I was to reboot my current life tra trajectory it would be working pretty much in what you're doing right now um, I love working with camera crews and, and and the likes but I also know how incredibly difficult it is for people listening in to this podcast and who will know undoubtedly even just hearing you for a few minutes will want to watch your work online and we'll put all the links obviously to that later on in uh, in the show notes can you explain the process of how you go about defining an idea, validating it that it's going to be entertaining enough, and then from st from literally from step one of coming up with a concept to ending up saying uh, the, going in the editing and then finally saying the film is ready? What's the and take your time uh, through it because I think it's really fascinating for people who don't know the process. I often say that, and I have no experience having babies, but it does feel like giving birth to something because you start really small, you have an idea, and by the time you're done with the edit, it feels like that film or that project has become part of you and it's very much something that you will always take with you wherever you go in life. And, you know, when a film comes out, um, I think it's exciting and it's amazing to see it on television and to have it appreciated in festivals and to see it go into the minds of people literally. But what I really like is the process, the hard work that goes into making the film, and especially the, the collaborative approach to filmmaking that you know our industry has. You have to work with people who are talented in difficult conditions, sometimes in the middle of uh, in a jungle somewhere, on a mountain in the ocean. Um, there are difficult days, not just in terms of the hostile terrain that you're navigating, but also in terms of did we get the story or, um, you know, what the story that we initially imagined before we got on to the location, is that really as impactful as we thought it was? So there are all of these complex ideas that you're constantly wrestling with. Um, but having an amazing team really makes it easier. And I'm lucky that I've been working with many incredible cinematographers, DOPs, sound recorders, directors, um, presenters, writers, producers. And I think all of us really are focused on creating impactful programming. And I think that's what is super exciting. So, you know, once we've identified a subject and that's often, you know, based on what's contextually relevant, like say during coronavirus, and, you know, 
2020 um, hit us in the face with COVID. We told a story about bat conservation and zoonotic diseases because it was contextually relevant to global audiences at that point. And it was for Al Jazeera. Um, oh, before that, we worked in a film about wildlife trafficking, just because I happened to come across some wildlife trafficking that hadn't been reported. So that was an example of an unplanned story just popping up. Um, but very often, I think, you know, to be able to be a filmmaker or a storyteller, you have to be really well read and you have to constantly be engaging with the world around you, not just with the world of wildlife and conservation, but I'm constantly reading about technology and politics because honestly, it's all linked. Um, and really, I think through that process of deep diving into the world around you constantly, um, you get ideas and seeds of inspiration. So once that seed of inspiration you know, comes into our heads or once we have a network often reaching out to us with an idea, because it's not always our idea, sometimes it's ideas that television networks already have and they need a production company to, to make it for them. Or sometimes they have a show and they need ideas and then they reach out to us. Or sometimes we have an idea that we can't wait to tell. Um, we reach out and we pitch these ideas to television networks. But um, once that process you know, has kind of started, the first question I always ask is, what is my impact goal? And that is a really good starting point because I can clearly outline what kind of change I want to make with the documentary. It really depends depending on different projects. We worked on a film um, series called Planet Defenders for the BBC Natural History Unit. And that was focused on telling conservation stories to younger audiences. So when we started out making this film about elephant tourism and its links to trafficking, um, the first question was, what is my impact? And the answer was that I want to make sure that the kids who watch the show go back home to their families and say, hey, the next time we're on holiday, let's not go ride an elephant. Let's not go pet a tiger. Let's not interact with animals in um, imposing and extractive ways. Um, and I guess in the way that we designed the programming, we had that question in our mind the entire time. We were thinking about our audience, we were thinking about that goal. And the exciting thing was that when the film finally came out, we had kids reaching out to us from different parts of the world saying that, hey, we watched the film and there's no way I'm riding an elephant again. And I'm, I'm so glad that I actually understand that these are wild animals and they're not just born in captivity out of nowhere. So I think that's the benefit of asking that question of what is your impact goal? Um, and then of course, once you've asked that question, you've written down the initial script, you go out into the field with tons of bags of equipment um, and you have to be nice to the airport guys so that they let you through. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Yep. Yesterday, I had like some 15 bags coming back from Bangladesh to India after a shoot. And the guy was like, are you a filmmaker? What are you smuggling? And he was just joking about it. But that's sometimes what it's like. You know, you're carrying tons of uh, bags to tell the story because visuals matter. Um, but you go into the shoot and you have this idea of the story. And what I find really interesting about me, Mike, is the fact that that story changes with factual programming. Um, the story sometimes completely changes or you know it gets tweaked and you have additional insight added to that because you're working with local collaborators and communities and scientists and they have their own perspectives that can make your story so much richer and that comes back to the idea of the collaborative process right um you have different ideas to make better films for better um impact goals and then finally once the film is you know shot you come back home and you start editing it and i think that's a really exciting process as well to be 
holed up inside of a room with lots of coffee, looking at tons of footage, hours and hours of footage, and then condensing and condensing and condensing it until it's a real story. And I think our editors are superheroes for being able to just cut away all of the excess content that we have and really bring out the diamonds that we have in the footage. Yeah, many a many a poor movie has been absolutely saved in a in the edit. And I know I've spent hundreds of hours sat in edit suites. I'm, I don't know how to use the systems like the professional editors, but I've been sat there watching magic made in front of my eyes, which otherwise looked almost amateur in some cases. Yeah. So, yeah, they're the um, they're the most unsung heroes, the editors of the documentary and filmmaking world. So, Absolutely. so you've how many films have you made now? Actual documentaries. Um, I think about 23 or 24, something like that. Um, I've stopped counting. I used to count, but I've stopped counting now. And yeah. seeing the steals behind you from the from various docus, you've obviously been around the world a whole bunch of times. Now, you're classified as a Nat Geo Explorer. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and, and I want to know true. what the criteria is to become one of those uh, in, a, in a moment. But you've obviously been to some far-flung places in the... Um, in the bio that I was reading about you, said that you went undercover in the seafood trade to find out what illegal products, or rather what illegal species, were being sold. And that there was a hairy moment there because you were being, or moments, because you were being watched by the, the essentially the, the, the ringleaders, or I think it said the kingpins, um, of that trade. Well, government, which is even scarier. Uh, it was the um, government. Yes, it was the government that was uh, surveilling us because we were, you know, following difficult things in their country. So that can be really tricky. And I think, you know, with investigative work, there's so much risk involved with it. Um, but it's still honestly the most exciting thing. And it kind of comes back to my passion for that adrenaline kick. I really need to start going on a roller coaster every morning. So I stopped doing more dangerous shoots. Um, but I think it does give you that sense of having a mission. Um, and even when there are dangerous moments and difficult moments, you're driven by that mission of getting the story. I know that the illegal fishing industry, which is worth many billions of dollars, obviously, yeah. the illegal unregulated fishing, um, it's one of the most dangerous industries in the world. I mean, people get on board boats thinking they're going out to sea for three months and they're not allowed to come back for two years. It's actually... Yeah, the, the, uh, there is a slave industry that happens yeah. in it, unbeknownst to the people who are being enticed on. They take their passports or their ID, and then they're out at sea for two or three years. Anyone who complains can end up overboard. And we know Ooh. this from a whole host of uh, investigators. It's also one of the most difficult industries to investigate because out there in the ocean, it's so vast. It's so... Everyone's... They can get away with it. They're un, unaccounted for in or unaccountable in many cases um but when so i know it's an incredibly dangerous industry and we've actually done analysis on it both for for here in indonesia for working with um, the uh, ministry of fisheries um when you went undercover what was the what was the process there because surely by now aren't you a bit recognizable i mean you've been in a whole bunch of documentaries you're 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 a and i you know, you're an attractive young woman who probably looks a bit out of place uh, walking around with seafood mafia in what I would imagine is less than um, less than pleasant surroundings. 
So how, how do you go about going undercover in such a situation? Well, I have to say that it was easier when I started out. The other day I was going undercover and someone said to me, I've watched your show. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's where you need to put a, be- a beard on, right? And then some bigger shoulders and make yourself look like a man or something. Well, so I do dress up um, when I'm filming undercover. I do dress up as a seafood trader. I've got glasses with cameras embedded in them. We've got different kinds of hidden undercover cameras. And we keep constantly changing so that it's not, you know, recognizable. Um, and my team does a really good job of filming as well when we're in these situations. But it's really about understanding the story and the person that you're pretending to be. So when we were filming in these wildlife markets in Guangzhou and Hong Kong, I was pretending to be a seafood trader. So I didn't just have to learn about sharks and manta rays and you know all the exotic animals out there, but I have to learn about smaller species and like their Chinese names. Um, like what do I say when I'm talking to um, a Chinese trader? And I think that process of research is often very intensive because you cannot make a mistake in these situations. You cannot, you know, mm-hmm. let's you're actually a filmmaker um we have gotten into really really close encounters where people have begun to figure out we're filming but i think if you're convincing honestly you can get it anywhere so a couple of uh, weeks back i was filming for this documentary we're producing about um environmental change and pollution and we're focusing on fast fashion for the first half of the film so i pretended to be a buyer of clothes in this big fast fashion company and it was interesting because I went in there dressed up with cameras with the rest of my team and with a sales agent who also thought that we were actually buyers. So we placed a dummy order of T-shirts that they just wouldn't, um, you know, assume they were filmmakers. But I think a lot went into that, whether that was recruiting the sales agent, whether I was, you know, creating designs for clothes that we never needed to use, whether I was ordering those clothes um, just so that we could get the information. And we got what we wanted. We were interviewing someone um, who was a former employee at a company that produces clothes for some of the biggest retailers in the world that I can't say yet until the film is released. But he basically said that these big retailers that all of us have bought from at some point are dumping huge amounts of toxic chemicals into the river and they're turning the ETPs, the effluent treatment plants on, only when the foreign buyers come. So when you know outsiders come, that's when the ETP is turned on. So everyone thinks that it's perfect and it aids greenwashing efforts. But the rest of the year, it's business as usual and the environment is being compromised at you know a massive scale just to produce clothes for the global, often Western market. Do you, do you have any concerns for the after effects when you expose a company, you expose a group of illegal wildlife traders or the likes obviously these are people that have probably have money have influence and in some cases are probably not the nicest people that you're likely to uh, spend time around is there any extra emphasis that you have to take on your safety thereafter once when these documentaries come out well there are some cities that i just know i can't go back to um and that's something that i'm you know I've accepted. But uh, I do think that when I was starting out, I made the mistake of often villainizing in subtle ways. It wasn't, you know, we weren't obviously saying it, but villainizing the smaller players in the system, you know, the small scale traffickers and the small scale fishermen who were illegally capturing 
um, different kinds of seafood or the people who were trafficking, you know, wildlife products into different parts of Asia. But I've realized now that, you know, it is the big players in the system. And even if someone is killing five elephants and it's terrible and it's a global syndicated industry, we often talk about that one poacher, but we don't take on the big industries. We don't take on the shells of the world and the H&Ms of the world just because it's easier to blame the small player. So I'm much more concerned about the safety of the small players that I'm filming with than I am about my own safety, just because I know that um, when a film comes out, criminal systems come, you know, are also watching those films. It's police that are watching those films in local uh, ecosystems. And we just want to make sure that we're protecting people down the chain, down the supply chain. But when it comes to our personal safety, um, it's obviously a risk. And I think the people who choose to tell these stories kind of select themselves to be ready to tell these stories because we care so deeply about the issues. And often once you find out about a story, you can't not tell it. It's like, I know it's dangerous. I know it's a bad idea, but we have to tell it because there's no other way to expose what's happening. Um, and yes, we do need to be telling stories about the beauty of the natural world. And so much of what my production company does is beautiful natural history documentaries that are so important today. But then the other half is our investigative uh, feature documentary division, which creates films about complex environmental issues. And so often because of systems that are in place, the only way to get these stories out is to go undercover or to you know, tell a story in investigative ways. Um, right now, actually, we're producing this film about migrant exploitation and its links to climate change. Um, but with this film, we're, we're, we're working with a local presenter from Bangladesh who is a former migrant. And he is investigating how migrants are being impacted by rising sea levels and increased heat in their home countries and political instability that's driving them to you know, parts of the Gulf and other parts of the world where there they are encountering you know, high temperatures and worker exploitation. So I think one thing that I've realized over time is that with a lot of these investigative documentaries, it's not only environmental issues, it's often environmental issues and human rights issues that collide um, and it's important to tell both sides of the story obviously there's an environmental collateral but what is the human collateral yeah so as you were explaining that a number of people come to mind for me who um who i've met over my lifetime i've been to a lot of developing countries i spent a lot of time in, in haiti as one place which is one of the poorest places in the world as you know i spent yeah. over uh, nearly six months there over multiple trips and um in places where people are so utterly desperate to feed their children and to put food on the table or just survive a, another couple of days in many cases these people don't have the choice like we do as westerners to be able to decide to eat organic free-range meat they have to eat monkey or endangered species because that's the only thing on the menu and the majority of people who are who are most likely poachers or wildlife traffickers or the likes now i know at the top of the chain people are just making money and they're making buck but at that bottom end like you say very difficult isn't it to to judge people when they're they're surviving in a resource starved environment and all that's available is what we're telling them in the west because we have maybe more insight on to what it is to have endangered species or how on a global view 
we need to be protecting every species against extinction. But it's, that's a very privileged position to be telling people that you can eat, we eat pig and we eat cow and we eat, well, I eat cow, you probably don't. Uh, we eat all of these, but you're not allowed to eat monkey or you're not allowed to eat, uh, you know, or you're not allowed to kill a tiger and make money from it and, uh, and sell it to the Chinese for whatever aphrodisiac they believe that it's worthwhile. It's a very fine balance. And you, uh, I mean, you're, you come from a, you're, you're from India, you come from a developing country. I mean, I had the privilege of growing up in the UK. So you've seen a lot more of the effects of poverty than most people in the West will ever see. How do you, I mean, do you have a sort of rule of thumb of how you get those narratives across? Because you're obviously wanting to impact people's thinking around how important it is to preserve and protect. But people are important as well. Right. And, and, and just to finish there, I mean, one of the issues I see with the environmental movement, and I consider myself an unintended environmentalist. I'm an environmentalist because I have two young children, sons who I want to inherit a world that I had the privilege of experiencing in my youth, which is one rich in wildlife and beautiful places and clean oceans. And so I, I do it as much for them as I do it for, for the natural world itself. But one thing that that I'm not comfortable with in a lot of the environmental um, narratives is how is the sort of anti-human approach where humans are this scourge on the planet and that, that if we can depopulate in some shape or form as long as it's obviously not privileged westerners who are depopulated as long as we depopulate in developing countries you know over there then um uh, then everything will be okay because we'll bring populations down and then animals can thrive. And and it's a, it's it's one that I'm not particularly comfortable with because I like people on the whole, you know, <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't want to be in that depopulation program and neither do you and no, neither does anyone with any sense that I've ever met. They want to bring their families up and be in their communities and be safe and be without friction and conflict unless you're an arms dealer and then you want as much conflict as possible. Um, so, um, so that's a, a, a sort of my view that I'm interested in on how you balance those kind of narratives between also showing the natural world's necessity for survival. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I think we're all the product of the narratives that we grew up um, watching and listening to. And this whole population narrative is, I think, at its core, deeply racist. Um, this idea that, you know, it is the global South that is developing and having too many babies and polluting is something that is so deeply entrenched that people from the global South, including me, have often believed it. Mm. And so I was producing, I am producing this documentary with my team about pollution. And initially, the first three countries that I chose were India, Bangladesh, and Mongolia, three countries in Asia. And then I began to think about it when I realized that, hey, this is, you know, perpetuating a problem that I obviously see at this point. So now we've shifted to telling one part of the story in Bangladesh, but then the other two parts in North America, because I think that is where a lot of the locus of power exists. And that's also where a lot of the pollution comes from, right? But we're not often talking about it because it's not, you know, squatters who are polluting, but it's big industrial 
um, machines that are polluting. And it's the, the industry that is really working closely with government to continue polluting and uh, damaging environments that are often populated by people of color and people who are vulnerable. Um, so I think that we need to really, really reframe these conversations and reframe them by saying that, hey, obviously it is a collective problem and we have a collective responsibility but there are some reparations to be paid environmentally and we do need the big countries all across the world the hegemonic powers that we see um we need them to step up a little bit more and to contribute to reducing um environmental catastrophe in countries that have not contributed to emissions. Like for example, my neighboring country, Pakistan, has been dealing with crazy amounts of flooding and heat waves. And India, of course, is also really, really vulnerable to climate change. Even though the emissions from this side of the world haven't been historically as high as parts of the West. So I think that narrative definitely needs to change. Um, and I'm a big proponent of having industry driven solutions and really putting the onus on industry when it comes to innovation, because there is no way that we can progress. Communities across the world will not be able to stop using their smartphones and not driving cars and you know going back to being hunter gatherers. It's not going to happen. Um, and at the same time, we have this 8 billion people, a growing population of people all across the world that have infinite aspirations and the environment needs those aspirations to be condensed and the economy needs them to be expanded. So there's an inherent contradiction there. And the only way that I see that we're gonna get out of this is by investing in the green sector, by investing in renewable energy, in regenerative industries, in regenerative agriculture, and really being inspired by the indigenous communities across the world who have lived in coexistence with the natural world and many of our documentaries at untamed planet have focused on these communities and they really really inspire me they don't not take from the land they're definitely taking from the land on a daily basis but they're conscious of the fact that they need to leave enough for their future generations and they need to take enough and they need to give back enough and i think for us as modern day human beings living in cities giving back means investing in the green sector. And right now, so much investment that we see in the nonprofit world goes to other causes, which are really important, but so little goes to nature-based solutions and tech-based solutions. And our industry often operates in these absolutes of, you know, we've got to invest in nature-based solutions, or we've got to use, you know, climate tech. I think we need everything. We need every toolkit that we have out there. Um, and we need to have every kind of innovation out there to combat the climate crisis because we're already at that point. Yeah, well, you're speaking speaking to the converted, obviously, um, because yeah. our, <laughs> the the company that I'm a you know major player in, we take we have two activities. One is a very highly sophisticated environmental intelligence platform, which enables us to actually know what's going on in the environment from ocean acidification to coral reef degeneration or regeneration to fish stocks to land-based uh, issues like pest control on on farms of species management carbon uh, sequestration and the likes so that's our tech play and then we've also over the last three years put an inordinate amount of time and effort and resources into bioregenerative agri agriculture because the the I think the pretty much confirmed numbers are about 30% of greenhouse gases come from the uh, 
agricultural industry globally. Um, and that's not hard to believe, especially right now here in Bali, because it's cr- it's a rice straw burning season, meaning that they've harvested the rice and then they don't actually have any idea on how to compost because they've never been taught how to compost rice straw. So all of it gets burned. And I know that's a that's a major issue, but where you are as well in India. And I know that for a fact, because every time I look for um, new research papers on novel ways of cleaning industrial effluents or, or uh, waste spills using plants or um, looking at composting rice straw in novel ways or composting certain materials. I typically always find a paper from India. <laughs> and, and it seems that there is quite some... Um, I don't know if it's a renaissance but uh, or whether it's been going on for a, a long time, but there seems to be quite a lot of uh, universities and interested parties in restoring the land and restoring the environment using quite traditional and regenerative practices. Uh, we use here on our farm, so we have a small farm here, um, NatureWorks Farm. It's recovered rice paddy fields that we've taken on custodians of and we're doing it in different phases we're doing an acre at a time because we're training up local farmers who don't have any idea in organic farming and we're retraining them and that in itself is a is a challenge because the regenerative approach is very knowledge intensive and the monoculture with rice farming is you can be a robot and do it you know you just throw fertilizer and spray pesticide and the likes but we have a a plant that i'm mildly obsessed by and we've put five thousand of them over the property so far we'll probably do another five or ten and that's vetiver and that's an indian um yeah it's an indian grass and the only reason i know about vetiver is because i was researching ways to clean pollutants up and i found three or four papers out of different indian universities uh, showing how they had cleaned up sewage and wastewater and uh, in villages where they'd planted it and the likes. And so I have this um, mixed view of India, of it being... One, I was there about I was there about 15, 16 years ago uh, for three weeks. I was filming, actually. I, 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 was, I, was, um, I was in uh, a place called... You may not have even heard of it because every Indian I've ever mentioned it to has looked at me blankly and it's called Kolhapur. And it was about... It's called Kanpur. Kolhapur, yeah. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing it terribly wrong. And it was north of of, um, Mumbai. And um, by about 15 hours, often on the wrong side of the road, um, in in the Land Rover that we were in, (laughs) there was floods on some of the motorways. So we went over onto the other motorway, which nobody seemed to mind. Um, But I did Kushti wrestling in uh, in the home of it yes i am impressed i'm yes. very impressed yeah. that something. I, I spent a week in a kushti wrestling uh retreat uh, or training area with all of these about 80 grown men all wearing loincloths ro- rolling in the mud not one of them spoke a word of english and then i wrestled along with my friend on that show jack osborne who's the son of ozzy osborne you know the famous singer um, we then wrestled in the mud in front of about 15,000 um, screaming 
uh, Indian locals who luckily probably none of them bet on the uh, white boys to win because we got uh, thrashed. Anyway, so uh, I've, I've spent a few weeks in, in India and seen the, the, the chaos and the wonder and the awe and the clash of beliefs and, the, and it's, there's nowhere else like it on earth. But I have this kind of sense of, of um, India actually having, a, even though it's this massively developing and, of course, everyone wants cars and everyone wants stuff and everyone has the right to have that, by the way, absolutely. But there also seems to be quite a deep sense of understanding of how important it is to be restoring nature and protecting it. And I wonder whether that comes from the kind of spiritual and religious beliefs that are so inherent in the country or whether is there a scientific renaissance i i have here i want to ask about india you know it's your home and um it's the large one of the largest developing economies in the world and it can either make us or break us along with china you know what what's what's the lay of the land well to answer your question of course believed in nature and its power but i also think that we're a country of incredibly talented, intelligent, and driven people. And that's why we have so much innovation coming out of India. Whether that is scientific innovation, whether that is technology, whether that is um, having our forest departments conserving wildlife, I think India has done an incredible job in so many ways. Um, and, you know, when it comes to biodiversity, I'm really proud of the fact that we still have so much big, so many different kinds of big charismatic megafauna. That's not the case in different parts of the world. If you look at America, for example, so much of the big biodiversity has just been killed off or hunted. Whereas we still have tigers and the tiger numbers are on the rise, right? And of course there are challenges and we've got cheetahs coming in. I don't know how I feel about that just yet, but um, we have a lot of conservation challenges and there's obviously a big struggle with industry often and with um, commissions to destroy forests. But I think on the whole, in many ways, I'm inspired by my country's commitment to conserving nature and to conserving the natural world. And I do believe that in the areas where we fall short, whether it is in the energy sector, whether it is with our resource consumption, or whether it is with um, biodiversity extinction, hopefully it is that very strong core scientific integrity and tech and you know innovation and just you know, good governance as well in many parts of the country that will come up and will solve those problems. So I'm definitely very optimistic, but I also do think that it's important for us to embrace the green sector. In many parts of the global South, we often talk about how, you know, the West has had its time in the sun to pollute, you know, pollute for the longest time. And now it's our time. I think that's a deeply problematic narrative. We are in this together. And I think there's also a huge economic advantage of getting on the green energy bandwagon fast because then we're in control we're independent we can depend on ourselves so rather than saying that you know hey we're going to pollute in extractive ways for the next 30 years because you know you guys have done it already i think it's important for us and we're doing this in many many ways to say this is the time to invest in indigenous green technology and indigenous solutions in locally developed um, conservation management protocols and solutions just because then we're going to be leaders in this ecosystem. So yes, I am all for a world of collaboration, but I think a good amount of healthy competition between countries and this green race to the top is important, just as we've been competing in the race to the bottom. Yeah, I see that here in Indonesia. 
obviously. Mm. Um, We've got a population of 290 or so million people and there's now a burgeoning middle class. That comes with its own problems, but it's also, I've spoken to my friends who've been here 40 and 50 years, respectively, and they delight at the fact that they've seen in their lifetimes, as Americans who've lived here this long, people being able to send their kids to really good schools and people being able to afford really safe and and comfortable homes and and the same people being able to get access to really good medical care and all of that stuff that should be on some level basic human rights and of course they're doing that um they're doing that at the expense of the environment because being human and on the planet is at the expense of the environment no matter what we do unless we just become monks and start you know sitting or nuns or the equivalent and sitting and breathing in fresh air and running off of sunlight and none of us are going to be doing that um, but there is also here a huge amount of attention now going into how can they be more sustainable and ecologically sound, especially here in Bali, where the governor wants to turn the whole island organic in the next three years. Everything just wants to do away with chemical farming, which is really exciting for me because this is my home uh, long term. Yeah. So where do you where do you see the, the most um, impact being made in a country of what is it? One point one billion people in India, something like that, isn't it? Billion people, yeah. Um, I think that we've had a lot of... (laughs) It's all right. I picked that one up. Can we take a break and and just, I mean, just go talk about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll pause. It's quite... It's quite funny that you left me on a uh, with a. I got the drilling to stop. Ah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but over your, over your right shoulder, there are kangaroos mating. Not, kangaroos. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, those are wild dogs. They're called oh. toad. Oh, I couldn't. From here, I can't figure. I was thinking that looks like kangaroos having a really good time. Um, <laughs> well, they are mating, and they're also both. I think I think they're both male. They're just kids playing. They're oh, young. <laughs> Uh, the uh, uh, they're Indian wild dogs, are they? Or, or? yes, they are. Yeah. They're in the forests of Kabini in the Western Ghats, where we were filming them recently. So we spent an, about a month following a pack of these wild dogs through the forest, and it's incredible because they are literally smaller than my Labrador at home, but they can like the pack together can take down a deer in no time. I didn't realize they were wild. Uh, so this is a this these aren't feral dogs these are an actual wild species they're like a wild, endangered wild species that you find inside the forest they're harder to see than tigers in some parts of the country so are you spending weeks at a time living in the wilds so to speak very often so the way that you know we do things at my company is that we have two different divisions one half of our team is often filming natural history documentaries and environmental films um, and then the other half is doing more investigative content, some human rights films. We often do like branded content here and there, but really our two main focus areas are producing natural history, blue chip films and series and contributing to global projects and then producing um, films about environmental issues and human rights issues. And which of those do you feel most passionate about? Is there a... I can't choose. I feel like there are two parts of who I am. And honestly, I don't think I could do one without the other, right? Because I think the weeks in the forest or in the ocean diving with animals like sharks or hanging out with elephants, um, it's those moments that refresh my soul that make me truly, truly happy. Um, And that's, you know, honestly, that's 
my zone. Um, and I think for our team as well, it's super, super exciting to be out there in the forest telling these stories. And then the other half is stories that we just have to tell. And it's, it's a very different kind of excitement because we have this mission. It often feels like at the beginning of the show, we set ourselves out on a path that's almost impossible and we're not going to get the story. Like that's what I thought 10 days back. Well, we put in 100% and you know the story slowly begins to come together. And I think that process of finding the story, capturing it and communicating these complex environmental issues is really exciting. Um, and then the natural history is what we go to after and, you know, tell stories about beautiful places and beautiful ecosystems. Uh, and, and, and those natural history films that you've made, where, where are the most remote regions that you've been to? Like you just said, you've, you've, you've spent a month following these wild dogs. I'm imagining you in the forests and getting eaten alive by mosquitoes and having to sleep in hammocks and the likes. Or are you doing a Bear grills and filming that and then staying in a five star hotel down the road? That's a very good question. Um, so with the with the natural history shoots, we often have to be in hotels because you need to charge your cameras, you need to make sure that you're processing the data. So we're not filming the crazy, you know, adventures that we have and then actually staying in a five-star hotel. Um, we're just, you know, filming natural history, so only animals for those shows. And then we do a lot of presenter-based shows where I'm often in the jungle. And I think with some of those presenter-based shows, it's genuinely really hard and we're living on the land, camping out in the middle of nowhere. We recently were filming in Kashmir and we were in a hide for many days. And then we hiked all the way up this mountain to film these marmots. Um, and it took quite a while to get up the mountain. We could see helicopters hovering above from you know, neighboring countries at some point. And it was really an adventure. And at one point we ran out of supplies because you know, we were hungrier than we as we would be. So we had to pay someone to come all the way up the mountain with more biscuits and fruit for the rest of us. But you know, when we have these wild shoots, it's often really exciting because you have to be on your guard the entire time because there's wild animals around. So your senses are almost more alert in a prehistoric way like it reminds me of early man and woman because you're constantly thinking about you know where you are whether there's you know great sources of food around where the next water source is whether there's a safe camping ground um and recently when i was filming um for this project that we're doing i was in the forest and i got chased by a bear and it just came out of nowhere and i wasn't expecting it but thankfully um I realized that I have this incredible ability to scream very, very loud. <laughs> I wondered what was coming next from that. <laughs> I have never had to practice it in my life, recently, thankfully, but that bear really tested it and I was able to get out unscathed. What kind of bear was it? It was a Himalayan black bear. And how, how big do they grow? Don't tell me this thing's the size of a small weasel. I mean, it's the size of a human being when it's standing up on two feet, right? These are big animals. And their instinctive response to conflict is to claw your face out. So oh. often people die, but they claw people's faces out. So it's really gory and it's really difficult for the communities that live there that have apple orchards because these bears want a quick snack and they, you know, they don't have a 7-Eleven, so they hop down to the neighboring orchard and that's where a lot of conflict happens so it's i mean for us we're, we're just popping in and we're having these adventures and getting out there but for the communities it's it's a constant unglamorous battle so um you have is that the documentary that you made about human animal conflict 
Well, so this film is actually a natural history film. We're doing uh, a natural history and presenter, so I'm on camera talking about animals, and it's about the adventure as well, and it's an expedition um, in Kashmir. And there's bears and there's hangul, which is a critically endangered deer. There's about 250 of them left in the wild and all these different other species. So we're doing like an exciting broadcast version. But what I find personally really fulfilling is that we're also doing a virtual reality film, which um, is directed by my co-founder, Nithya Sood. And it's basically a film that will reach out to the local communities because this is a conflict zone. Kashmir is at the India. Mm. Pakistan, you know, border and it's a contentious place politically. So a lot of people just don't have access to the wild. They're constantly in lockdowns, not COVID lockdowns, but political lockdowns. They don't get to step outside of their homes very often for long periods of time. Um, and many people just don't have a television. So the only way to reach out to these communities is through exciting, emerging new technology like virtual reality. So besides the broadcast version that will probably you know, find its way on a major network, um, we're also doing a shorter version, which is about wildlife. And it's, you know, when we did the first draft, we showed it to a couple of community members and they put the headset on and they saw this animal that they'd only heard about through reports on television for the first time and it felt they felt like they were there and the sense of awe and wonder from everyone from five-year-olds to grandmas and grandpas um was just really really heartwarming i think um and that's what makes it special to be able to genuinely reach out to communities and it has to be intentional the reason i say intentional is because you can't just make a film and assume that it's going to go out to everyone yes we have the privilege of working with networks like national geographic the bbc al jazeera discovery and those reach out to millions and millions of people and i'm so grateful for that platform um but in rural areas i think you know things like virtual reality can really make a difference so you're a nat geo a nat geo explorer What's the criteria for being declared a Nat Geo Explorer? Do you have to have done a certain amount of miles or made a certain amount of movies or been chased by a certain amount of bears? Well, I guess National Geographic Explorers around the world are people who um, have a passion for exploration and for telling stories that can make a difference um, and for doing research that can make a difference. So it's an application form. Anyone in the world can be a National Geographic Explorer. I think it's competitive. I don't know what the I don't know what that's like, but it's an incredible community. And I became a National Geographic Explorer about five, seven, six years back now, six years back. And it's just the most inspiring community of explorers. I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. recently at the National Geographic Explorers Festival, and I was hanging out with someone who literally was, you know, part of the discovery of the Titanic. And there was Sylvia Earle there, who's been doing incredible work with ocean conservation. And Jane Goodall is a National Geographic Explorer as well. And there are all of these incredible younger explorers as well from different parts of the world who are doing pioneering work. And What's exciting is that there are scientists, there's archaeologists, there's geologists, there's filmmakers, photographers, and we're all in love with the natural world and a bit crazy what we do. So it's a great place to meet other people who you can collaborate with, to work with on projects. And I'm just really grateful that National Geographic Society and National Geographic Partners has invested in so much of the work that I do because they've taken risks. They've, they've invested in films that are often difficult to make, you know, we don't know whether we'll get the story. It's, it's something that's difficult to capture. But I think they're driven by a sense of, you know, 
supporting people who want to make a difference in the world. And I just feel really grateful for that platform and for that opportunity. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, it must be quite something to have that above your door and that Geo Explorer. I quite, <laughs> quite like that. Actually. I, mine would say local barley explorer. It happens to be a flag <laughs> Look at that! Where I I hope you fly that every uh, main major mountain that you climb to the top of. Um, where do the majority of your films get seen? Are they? Is it? And uh, are you talking to an Indian audience? Are you talking to an Asian audience? Or, or US? Or well, so global audiences. Last I checked, I mean over a hundred and. 70 countries is that's where our films have played so many many places across the world um we've had our films on national geographic on discovery on the bbc al jazeera um yeah and other platforms as well but i think we started out as an indian production company making films for an indian audience and we moved on to an asia audience now we're telling stories for global audiences and it's exciting because so often so much of the media power is concentrated in in the west in places like bristol and new york um and it's really exciting for us as a company to be based out of India and also the US because we're, you know, we, we do a lot of work in the United States and we've been based out of New York as well for the last year. Um, to be able to tell stories about India and about Asia and about the world um, to global audiences. So I think that's exciting. And I think we need to be having more diverse storytelling in terms of the voices represented on global television. We need to have more local people telling their stories. And we need to create a world where you can have someone from Bristol going to Africa and telling stories about Africa just as much as you can have someone from Africa going to Bristol and telling stories about the wild there. That's the world that I think we need. Well, you know you're currently being interviewed by someone from Bristol, don't you? <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> that's, that, that's my hometown. I grew up in Bristol. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, and in fact, I am fourth generation bristolian so oh um, wow yeah if you cut me through the middle it says it like a stick of sticky rock i don't know if you know that, that, <laughs> i love it's a great city and i think i have uh, quite a few friends there and and the, and the white marathon industry is based out of this it's a great place to to be from yeah it's a it's a wonderful place and actually i feel very fortunate that my love of nature was actually born out of being growing up in that city and i grew up in the suburbs in a in a a uh, very poor part of the city but surrounded by woodlands and parks and my escape from a less than happy childhood was just nature and going into the local woods um i was i was drawing kingfishers that very few people even knew existed in the local stream system uh, seven eight years old drawing those and going to the local library and getting bird books out and i knew where nested uh, where bearded tit nests were and they were a very very rare species at, at that time i found a crested newt in our local pond which was on the endangered species lease list in the uk you know it's a uh, it's always because it's surrounded by hills and and um i think that's had a a lot of influence on people there because it's a very green city you know unlike london where you get very specific parks you're actually surrounded by woodlands and a wide open countryside so yeah it's a very special place but i have that here in bali as well of course i live here our, our office right here is smack in the middle of balinese rice farming communities so we wake up very beautiful places i have to say yeah um, yeah well i was in boulder colorado before i came here and that's arguably the most beautiful place i've ever lived in my life yeah. i can't live in cities now because i'm just so accustomed to walking out my door and hearing the birds 
or hearing the crickets when I go to sleep and, you know, that becomes something um, of an addiction. So um, what are you working on now? What's the main, what's the main projects that you're also, engaged in? I just in? realized something, uh, a little correction. When I was talking about Bristol and Africa earlier, I said Bristol, which is a city, and then Africa, which is a continent. And I think that's <laughs> something that... I didn't pick up on that. I didn't pick up on that. But you're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you caught that. Well done. Uh, yeah. And very often, <laughs> this, you know, continents is like monoliths that are, are, you know, uniform. So I should probably say Tanzania or, you know, a city like Durban and Bristol as opposed to Bristol in Africa. But that's just calling me out and calling myself out. And I think, you know, as a storyteller, we're constantly evolving and getting better and trying to tell more representative stories, trying to change um narrative so i'm really I'm, I'm super excited about feedback and criticism when, when it comes from our audiences as well we put out a film you know 90 percent of people say they love it and the 10 percent is like what is this or you know that that did work out and i think that feedback that we get from that criticism is also really important in you know propelling ourselves forwards so without me going off in another path what are we working on right now we're working but on I, actually, I just interrupt you there a second though because you bring up a, a really good point and i think and forgive me i don't i don't mean this to sound um uh condescending and i'm an old man you know i'm 40 i'm about to turn 48 soon um but for the majority of 25 year olds that i encounter they actually want a much softer landing when in their careers and they're not looking for feedback and they're not looking for criticism and i saw actually in the nat geo interview with you or the profile on you that you actually changed one of your documentaries based on the fact that some of it wasn't accurate enough and I thought that was actually a really um, uh, a very commendable uh, thing to do because I've worked in TV, as, as you know, and you spend so much money capturing footage over a period of time to actually go back and refilm it and do it again is a big cost to the production budgets. Um, so, I, you know, that's incredibly commendable. And I think that speaks uh, mountains to your own um, ethics and values. So yeah, don't just gloss over that one. And it, and look, I, I I missed Bristol and Africa, and I know Africa's a continent, um, but you know Br- Bristol is the centre of the known universe. So you're, it's okay. It's it's oh, well, it's what. Yeah. My audience, um, but I also think that you know the reason we changed that it didn't require a crazy amount of effort because we usually do work with you know collaborators before and make sure that we have our facts correct. But in this particular case, it wasn't that we were not accurate, but because it was a community member that we filmed with who didn't feel like they were represented in their entirety. And I think, you know, it is so important for us to represent communities who live alongside wildlife with as much precision and authenticity who they believe themselves to be as we do with other subjects, right? So when they, what we do typically at Untamed Planet is that once we create our film, we have a community advisor who we show the first draft of the film to, then obviously the final draft as well, but we show the first draft of the film to and we say, what do you think? And I think that that input that we get is really valuable. And we need to really start seeing communities that we film with, not just as subjects, but as collaborators and often as producers of these stories. So I was working in London at uh, Ginger Productions, which was a relatively big-sized production company in the UK that were owned by a, a famous TV presenter called Chris Evans, although he'd already sold it and made £70 million by the time I started working there. And it was around the time when the scandal broke out over the Queen being misrepresented by um, the uh, the late Her Majesty, the Queen, uh, um, 
when she was misrepresented by the BBC and they'd filmed her storming down a corridor and I think from memory they'd made out that she was impatient or angry when in fact it was more the fact that she doesn't like being late for people and she was being impatient to be on time because of course Her Majesty was rarely if ever late. What a lady. Um, and, uh, And I remember people working on the projects I was working on having a meeting and saying <laughs> well you know with this new um, in, sort of impetus and uh, and focus on factual entertainment uh, uh, on the factual in factual entertainment we're gonna have to change some of these storylines that we've been working on and so much of the alleged factual entertainment and documentary making has been of course just um, uh, as very infactual and uh, poetic license has been applied in many many ways and i think one of the beautiful things about social media nowadays is that you can't really hide your bs companies who try and greenwash documentary makers who try and tell uh, inaccurate stories uh, companies that try and just make themselves look it's just now is the time of transparency and I, and I really appreciate that about I'm not a great fan of social media. I think it disconnects us in many ways. But if it's done right, then it has a has many benefits. But that for me is one of those benefits. So nowadays, when I watch a documentary, yeah, I actually um, get more of a sense of it being legitimate than I did 10 years ago before Her Majesty's, you know, issue with the BBC. Yeah. Uh, I do know that, you know, this idea of objectivity, Obviously, we have to try our 100% to tell stories in the most representative ways. But there's also something that I've been thinking about, which is that you're taking a massive complex issue uh, and you're condensing it into a 30 minute film. There is no way that you can represent every perspective out there. We are inherently human beings, flawed human beings with very strong opinions. I like to call myself someone with strong opinions that are loosely held. So I will change my opinions, but I do think that I influence the narrative of stories that I create. And everyone who works in the film influences that narrative. So I think true objectivity is impossible, even in factual programming. But I guess if you put an effort into the research process of figuring out how do we talk about climate change in a way that's equitable? How do we talk to communities? How do we get um, collaborators on screen who haven't traditionally been represented on television? When we put in that research, then you're, you know, you're creating, you're setting yourself up for success, I guess. But we also have to allow creators, for filmmakers, for photographers to make mistakes because it's so hard to be perfect in this world. We're all going to mess up at some point, but as long as we keep bettering and keep trying to tell better stories and stories that can really create an impact, we're on the right path. Humans are designed for stories. We're not actually designed uh, overly for facts. You know, we've uh, the written word is so much uh, more recent than the narrative that has been passed on around firesides and from father to son and grandfather to to, to grandchildren and the likes um, over m- millennia we're designed for stories and it, actually if you let too much it's not about the factual it's about framing it in a way that it's still compelling because if you just show a bunch of facts about the problems that you are facing or we are facing in your docus people will switch off and then there was no point in making it anyway so it has to be compelling um, so before I rudely interrupted you, but I did want to just sort of point out your ability to cha- take feedback and take it on the chin as a commendable one. Um, I'd ask you what you're working on now, and you were, you were about to start telling me what the main focus is. 
So we're working on a couple of projects. Some of them are in the natural history space. And my team is actually currently on shoot right now in a very beautiful forest while I'm at the office getting uh, some writing done for the next few days. And I, I love the writing process, so I don't mind, but I'm a little bit jealous of the fact that they're around beautiful elephants today. Um, so we're doing natural history stuff. We're also producing um, a couple of investigative documentaries, three and one conservation documentary and a short video series. So we've got our hands full. I can't you know, reveal more details yet because of all of the NDAs I'm wrapped up in, but I think you know, we've got some exciting programming up ahead that's gonna be you know, on television and on digital platforms. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to work with my team on developing these and getting these out into the universe. And is your long-term view to continue to make documentaries and to make footage or is it to move more into any other spheres of the environmental and conservation uh, domains do you intend to be so, a pol uh, politician at any point <laughs> well so um i you know i run a media company that's what i do and we produce documentaries that's something that i want to do every single day for the rest of my life because i love making films it's i can't imagine my life without the process of making films the hard work the the payoffs the failures the successes the the energy on a shoot the energy in the edit i just i love every part of filmmaking and being in the wild and telling these stories so i will be a filmmaker forever but um outside of my film work i do a lot of work Work, um, with environmental advocacy and policy, um, and I consult with nonprofit organizations and work on anti-trafficking campaigns. And I'm an ambassador for this initiative called the Global Peace Dividend Initiative, that is actively nudging governments across the world to demilitarize and reinvest the surplus from that demilitarization process in the environment and in the green transition. So um, I don't like to define myself outside of the filmmaker. Like, yes, I'm a filmmaker, but everything else I think is fluid. I don't know what I'll be doing in 30 years, but I just want to keep creating things in the world, building businesses, telling important stories and helping make the world a better place every day, just a tiny bit. And yeah, learning from my mistakes. Couple, a couple more questions, just, just personal ones. And this is at my interest as much as for listeners so are both of your parents indian yeah yeah and and so you grew up in you grew up in goa which is really known as a sort of party place amongst <laughs> most westerners isn't it it is it is it's definitely a party place i mean i grew up around the beach and it you know it's it's a fun place to grow up let's just say that and right now i'm based between goa and new york city which i think is just a really interesting contrast because i get the beautiful ocean outside and forests um when i'm in new york it's the hustle and bustle of you know one of the best places to be but wait you're in, in goa general. you're in goa now yes i am ah, i didn't realize i thought you were in a, some major city somewhere no i just got back from dhaka yesterday um and i'm in goa for three days before austria and then um, i'm back on shoot and then in new york again so um, are your family, are your parents into, uh, are they conservationists or are they scientists or are they, no? So this is completely different yeah, from the family line of business. My family runs an alcoholic beverage company and, you know, they're entrepreneurs and they do 
and my mom's into real estate she runs a real estate company and uh yeah i'm a filmmaker i don't think they really like being outdoors that much like they're they're city people they love the city but i've increasingly been getting my brothers and my family to spend more time in the wild and i think you know it's growing on them let's say that <laughs> so anytime you need a hip flask with whiskey you know that your parents are able to uh, provide well, I don't it for it's funny, I don't drink, so I'm constantly sipping in coconut water or orange juice because I grew up around you. I guess it's my form of rebellion. <laughs> on, um, on, I think it was last Friday, three or four days ago, I had an incredible young lady um, in here uh, in the podcast room, also Indian, um, Shrina Karani, her name is, and she's a political activist in the US. She's 29, four years older than you. We went for lunch afterwards. And um, what completely blew me away was her um, eloquence and her ability to to describe and define complex situations. And um, as I'm talking to you and, you know, you're for, I, I'm wondering whether there's some something going on in India that's turning out young women who are more eloquent and uh, and seemingly going after massive impact um, than most of the uh, people that I've spoken to in the last uh, year because I'm I'm deeply deeply impressed by your efforts and what you're doing um, especially the undercover stuff which because I know there's a huge amount of risk on that um, if people want to, and I know they will, want to see your films and to know more about you, where do they go and where? What would you say would be the best, um, the starting point? What if you know, if you've got all of a sudden f- fanboys like me um, wanting to watch everything, uh, where do we start? Because if there's 21 or so documentaries, um, uh, which one to start with and which one to end with? Well, you know, unfortunately, the thing is with uh, documentaries for television is that they come out on television and they're not, you know, all of them. Oh, no, we can't see them all. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, I would say follow um, Untamed Planet's website, follow me on Instagram, and I constantly post updates on projects that we're working on that are broadcast. But we also have some films that um, I think should be linked to on my company's website, which are still available on streaming platforms. And um, with some of the films that we're producing right now, actually, they will be available um, on streaming platforms. So I think that's an exciting thing. But yeah, I mean... Hopefully this changes with broadcast one day because it's an amazing opportunity to reach out to millions of people when you have something on television. But to have that, you know, click of a finger accessibility of films, I think would be an amazing innovation. And I'm sure, I guess with Netflix, you have that. And I guess with other broadcasting networks having their digital streamers, you have that more so. But I think we still have a lot of work to do in that department. But yeah, follow Untamed Planet's work and there's always updates there and on my Instagram as well. I always post about the projects that we're working on. And what's your, I'll put I'll put them in the show notes, but for a lot of people, they just listen to these things and, you know, these podcasts in the car and they're like, what's your, what, what is your Instagram name? It's my name, Malaika Vaz, so M-A-L-A-I-K-A-V-A-Z. And um, same for the website.com, is it? Yes, untamedplanet.in, it's but, I-N, yeah. But which documentaries can we actually watch and where can we watch them? Can we, is it on that Geo? Or? Well, so I think we did Living with Predators, which was a three-part series on coexistence. And that was a National Geographic across 90 countries. And I think it should be available on Hotstar and Disney Plus and some of those streaming platforms. 
Okay, fantastic. Um, and then I think Pang Yu Soy, which is a film about wildlife trafficking, um, that's also available in some places. And then we've done some non-wildlife documentaries as well, um, like this film that we produced called Refugees at Home, which is about the migrant crisis and how migrants uh, were impacted during COVID-19. Um, um, and I think that's available on our website. And, and the film that we did for Al Jazeera as well about zoonotic diseases, that's available on Al Jazeera's website and their YouTube as well, because right after it went on television, they put it up online. Okay, fantastic. Um, we're, yeah. we're three minutes out from the 90 minutes that I said I would um, uh, keep this podcast under. I could, uh, I've actually still got dozens of questions to ask you, but maybe we do a second one. Um, or if you've got any plans on coming to Bali anytime in the... Near yeah, future. and i want to hear more about the work that you're doing i've heard you know little bits on this podcast but it sounds super super impactful and exciting and just really necessary right now so i'd love to read into it more in the coming weeks and hear more about it in the future uh, absolutely and but look bali's going to become the i keep telling people it's going to become the green utopia of planet earth because of we have a governor here who is hell-bent on bringing it back to something of a green utopia with all organic and farming all over the island and restoring the coral reefs and carbon credits and electric vehicles and all of the problems that um, a uh, developed island like this with tourism is facing, there are solutions and they're underway. So for me, it's really exciting. But you're welcome here anytime. Come and be our guest. Come and see the farm. Come and see our seven rescued dogs who luckily... Oh, I love dogs. Good. <laughs> yeah, you have to be. Yeah. Or dogs, all kinds of dogs. Barley That's dogs. It. Barley dogs are semi-wild, semi... They're never really yours. They kind of come and go. You feed them. They give you affection yeah. when they want it. You can't really ask yeah. for it because they won't... But they don't really obey that much. They, My dogs have never been on leads. They live between the farm and the house. And sometimes they're in this podcast room secretly without me knowing. And then they start licking my feet whilst I'm interviewing people. And that's always a... <laughs> <laughs> always a shock luckily not today another camera down there so that you can record the... right. <laughs> <laughs> i'm checking now to make sure that there isn't one under there that has sneaked in um malika it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you it really has and um uh, i wish you all of the best in your projects i hope that we cross paths and Thank you for all of your efforts, your attention, your hard work, and also, more importantly, thank you for the risk that you take to get these stories out there. Because thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Much Have needed. A great rest of your day. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.